Take a few moments and just find out how that was for you and to see if you have any other, any other questions or comments. Uh, and then we'll keep going uh, with the next section, no small matter, reducing craving. <laughs> All right. So, any questions or comments about what we did so far? Uh, okay, good. Yeah. Poof. So you're sharing that. Okay. Then what happens? So, so, and that, by the way, that's really, yeah. Yeah. And then what happens? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for saying that. So just to repeat it for everybody. So, very normal process. I know it well. I kind of joke about it to myself. Breath, breath, breath. We need milk. <laughs> Shopping list. Safeway. Breath, breath. You know, except usually the Safeway phase is longer and spins out into a few other little mini movies. So, very normal process. Uh, a Interesting way to think about it a little bit neurologically, which is that when we go into those little mini-movies, those little reveries of various kinds, typically we're engaging what's called the default network in the brain, which people more and more have heard of. Uh, It's got a funny term, default. It's kind of where people go, especially college sophomores, when they're in an MRI in a study, when they're not being told to do something in particular. They started observing what was happening in their brains and they found that there's a lot of activation in the back of the midline and kind of spreading out from it. All right. So, in effect, a lot of meditative training is really about reducing default mode activation through training over time. And there's research that shows that the more that people go into that default mode of rumination, uh, the more they tend toward negativity. Oh, good. More tea. Just... Yeah, the, it's, there's a correlation. So like any correlation, it's about averages of groups, many exceptions. But as, pe- as mind-wandering increases, so tends to increase negative emotionality. Partly because the content of a lot of people's ruminations is anxious or irritated or resentful or self-critical. Not always. Some of these people are in a fantasy of, Man, I'm just fantastic. Just amazing. <laughs> Thor has nothing on me. Or, But most people's ruminations are like, oh, I've been cheated and mistreated. When will I find love? It's like the whole country western soundtrack, right? For their mind. So, not so good. So, in a lot of ways we train. So, the question, the practical question is what to do, right? And so, the finding generally is that with training and repetition, people truly can reduce being lost in thought or mind-wandering or sucked into negative rumination loops. And more and more, just be present in the moment, um, dealing with things, and also resting attention on something that's more positive and beneficial and and staying with it. It's a lot about practice. So... 
That's why I think a regular practice of present moment awareness is really good. It also helps to increase the stimulation of the object of attention. The breath is boring. That's why it's such good training, right? Nobody has ADD playing video games because it's so stimulating. So the, if, and I think for a lot of people, what's helpful is to increase the stimulation value of their object of attention. So rather than the, than the breath, maybe just do sensations of walking that are more stimulating. Or pick something like love as an object of attention. Just kind of marinating in gratitude, as I said. That's also quite stimulating. Then it's easier to stay present with something that's quite stimulating. Um, there are other little things that people do. Sometimes they'll count the breath. Uh, that's, that's a way to stay attentive, or to, including using their fingers. Uh, go up to four or five and then start over. The normal threshold of wandering is around the fourth breath. I suspect it's because literally the little neural networks that are involved in top-down regulation of breath use up their local glucose and other metabolic supplies. It's like trying to hold a weight and you just... It's hard to do. So it's really not entirely clear exactly why we do it. It can also be a very natural, evolved feature that, as I said earlier, animals that were just locked onto something for more than four breaths at a time might get eaten. And it's just kind of natural to pop up and out and wander and then after a little bit settle into the next thing. So so it's to... It's pretty natural. So it, helping ourselves in various ways is useful for steadiness of mind. Yeah. And stay with it. Yeah, it's important. Okay, a couple more, and then I'll keep going. Right there. Great. Okay, okay, good. And then you had a hand, someone else in my line of sight, where, yep, you're next. Okay, you'll be next. All right, great. So I find that even as it's gotten more subtle, there's still a judgment about not staying with the breath. Mm-hmm. And the more I can let go of that judgment, the easier... Eventually, ultimately, it is to stay with the breath. Great. Super. Thanks for sharing that. All right, right here. Right there. Great. Yeah. Just wondering um, if... It should be on. If you hold it close, it's probably okay. effective. Um, if you, to kind of simplify and make it... If you're having trouble just focusing on so simple, like the breath you were saying, what about doing more single-task-oriented activities... More single single task oriented activities like people get lost in their art or you know like they say rock climbing your mind can't go many places would that be like a stepping stone to getting to sit and meditate better like things that oh I follow you yeah Yeah. Um, so I I personally think that's plausible that if you do other things that um, involve focused attention a lot of research shows you can train focused attention. The trick, of course, is to generalize from the particular form of focused attention to other applications of focused attention. And, um, but that said, sure, yoga, Pilates, walking the dog really mindfully, uh, rock climbing, I've done a lot of rock climbing very mindfully, uh, good stuff, you know, yeah, if it works. And I, and I think that for many people, their primary meditative practice is walking the dog or brushing their daughter's hair. You know, that's okay. Uh, okay. 
All right, a couple more. Ole, gay in the back. There we are, hand up, super. In the interest of time, maybe I'll just finish with you and then we'll keep going. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so going back to the default mode network for a moment. So does the default mode network only activate when your mind wandering is non-intentional? For example, if I'm thinking about what time do I need to leave to the airport to get to my flight, is the default mode network also being activated then or is it only when it's non-intentional? This is great. Okay, so... Um there, there's always new research emerging, and um, the <laughs> quick geography is that inside your head are about 1.1 trillion cells in about five cups of volume, All right? a little over a liter worth of volume, 1.1 trillion cells. 10% or so are neurons, 100 billion or so. There are as many neurons inside your head as there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. A hundred billion. A typical neuron makes several thousand connections with other neurons, some more, some less. That, if you do the math, several thousand times a hundred billion, that means several hundred trillion little microprocessors inside your head right now, busily buzzing away. As well as other forms of information processing that proceeds not just based on what's happening at these little connections between neurons called synapses. Wow. So a lot of stuff's going on. So studies can often find activation in some part of the brain and they'll draw a conclusion from it that's statistically significant, but it's just a small piece of the total puzzle. To give you a sense of the scale of size and, and speed, uh, neurons typically, you may have seen pictures of them, they're different shapes and sizes, but it's kind of like a little, like a cell body with little wires sticking out. All right. Typical neuron um, cell body, you, the width of the cell body, you could put five of them roughly side by side in the width of a hair. That's pretty small. You still need a microscope to scan. But the junctions, the synapses, several hundred trillion of them in the brain, between neurons, you could put several thousand of them in the width of a single human hair. They're so tiny. So in a cubic millimeter, which is roughly the resolution of an MRI, and that's a good MRI, um, uh, could contain millions of synapses. A lot of action there going on. And things are also happening quickly because a typical neuron's firing five to 50 times a second. And large coalitions of neurons firing synchronously and therefore creating brain waves as they pulse, fire, not fire, fire, not fire, synchronously, that's also happening 5, 50, 80, or more times per second. So much can happen. So a lot of, and also neuroscience is a baby science, so a lot of new things are coming out. All that said, if we're task-oriented, and I'll talk about this in the afternoon, we tend to engage the midline and the front part of it. So we're planning when to go to the airport. When we start spacing out and going into reverie, I call it the, the simulator. We go into the simulator. and We start having these little mini-movies. We ruminate about things. Then we tend to engage more of the back and spreading out to the sides. All right. So to your question, um, can you go into the default mode deliberately? I'm sure there is. it's possible. And of course, under normal 
thinking. We're engaging these different parts of the brain. They're active. They're involved. But I think it's very possible that if somebody says, oh, I'm just going to, I'm stuck in the airport or I'm stuck in a situation. I'm stuck at Thanksgiving at my in-laws, whatever. I'm just going to space out for a while. So deliberately, then you could enter the simulator and just play around there for a while. But um, as I'll get to in the afternoon, while the development of those capacities to have very directed task-oriented problem-solving, including that is focused on the future and then draws on other resources to proceed, and also the evolutionary development of the default mode region where you can just kind of do mental time travel and space out about the past and the future. That's a fantastic evolutionary development uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, especially if we have a culture that's a deep training, neurons that fire together, wire together, in those different forms of mental activity, uh, then that thing that was once a great tool for our ancestors can become a burden on us today as people spend a lot of time mind-wandering, not in the present moment, or drawn into a kind of training through entertainment and media of various kinds that pulls them away from the immediacy of the moment and their own experience and also tends to breed a lot of self-referential processing. If you do studies on um, self-referential mental activity, me, myself, and I, my precious, taking it personally, all that, uh, really tends to involve the midline. So being able to not get lost in the midline and being able to switch in and out of it deliberately and engage other aspects of the brain, as we'll get to this afternoon, is a very useful thing. Okay. We could do a lot more on any one of these things. I'm going to try to regulate my craving for this material. So I want to pop into now a deep question about the Four Noble Truths. Okay, so, and again, these are foundations aiming toward nowness, wholeness, allness, and oneness. So, I want to basically tell the Four Noble Truths. This is the Buddha's drive theory of suffering. So, he observed and that there is suffering. It's not the entirety of life. Clearly, there is suffering from very subtle forms of mental or physical discomfort, unease, tension, stress, burden, all the way out to really agonizing mental or physical pain. There is suffering. Second proposition offered to your inspection is that as craving arises, so does suffering. That word craving is a probably a not perfect translation of the Pali word tanha, whose root is thirst. Thirst. Something missing. There's a deficit. Something's disturbed. Trying to make it right. Okay? So, that's the Buddha's hypothesis. That craving creates suffering. So much suffering is rooted in craving. Broadly defined. Okay. Third proposition is that as craving diminishes, so does suffering. Fourth truth, hypothesis, is that there is a path that embodies the reduction of craving and the cultivation of happiness, 
and love and peace and wisdom, service and joy. And that path also leads to less and less of that trouble for ourselves and others. Okay? So then the question is, if the engine of suffering is craving, and the engine, as it were, the cause of happiness and love as craving falls away, is the falling away of craving, what is craving? And why does it happen at all? And it's really struck me. I encountered Buddhism in 1974 when I started meditating. It's been quite a while. And what's really been curious to me, especially as Buddhism has moved to the West, is how little attention there really is to craving. And why, why, what is craving? Especially now that um, we have a lot of good science that in, can inform our thinking about this fundamental engine of stress and conflict, uneasiness, sorrow, and pain. And so I've got, done a lot of exploration myself of what is craving and what causes it and how can we change those causes? How can we replace the causes of craving with the causes of um, stable, reliable, resilient happiness? So that's what I want to talk with you right now. Because when we're caught up in craving, when we're caught up in a sense of something missing, something wrong, then it's really hard to drop into nowness, wholeness, wholeness, and oneness. All right. So as a way of looking at craving through the lens of evolutionary neuropsychology inside the natural frame in an embodied way, it is bodies that crave. The body craves. The animal body wants something different. How does that happen? Well, a framework for looking at this is given in this loose model of evolution. Don't take it too seriously, but it's, it's as if the house of the brain is built from the bottom up in three floors. We have the brainstem level. The nervous system began, emerged around 600 million years ago. Ballpark. Um, mammals emerged around 200 million years ago. Primates around 40, 50 million years ago. Hominid ancestors who could use tools to make tools around two and a half million years ago with brains about a third our size currently. Anatomically modern humans at least 200,000 years ago. Recent findings push it back around 300,000 years. And then in that larger context, agriculture started to emerge around 10,000 years ago, prior to which all of our ancestors lived in small hunter-gatherer bands, averaging around 50 people. Imagine that. In this room right now would be uh, 30 adults, typically, in a hunter-gatherer band. That We have four tribes in this room right now, in effect. That's our natural social group. Okay, And then, only 5,000 or so years of writing literacy. And even during the Buddhist time, very few people were literate. It was mainly the tax collectors who, of course, had to know how much money was needed. So it's in that larger context now that we're talking about the house of the brain. First floor, brainstem, loosely associated reptilian stage of evolution. Second floor, subcortex with things like amygdala, hippocampus, basal ganglia, etc. Mammalian, loosely associated with it. And then Neocortex, so-called, 
very associated with the primate and especially human stage of evolution. All right? That's kind of a structure. So in that structure, we can now think about three fundamental needs because we crave in reference to needs. Right? Craving is in reference to needs. I need something. Something's missing. Something's wrong. Initiating drive. Drive is in reference to need. This is a deep and fundamental idea in psychology. So, what do we need? There are different models of this. A fundamental framework that uh, others and, and I have developed is this notion of the three fundamental needs as umbrella terms being safety, satisfaction, and connection. I think there are needs, if you will, wants that don't neatly fit into this framework. Many important things are blends, but this is a map. This is a framework. I'm using this as a framework to enter into an exploration of what we can do in our practice to reduce the underlying basis for craving and therefore create more opportunity and space for ordinary well-being, let alone awakening. These needs are met, are activated by a sense of unpleasant. The Buddha was very focused on this idea in the chain of dependent origination in which there's this key sequence he talked about many times, which is utterly psychological. Sequence begins with what he called contact, which is a very basic elemental stimulus. Something has happened, there's a sound, there's a sensation, there's a thought. Something has happened. Contact. Then there's the sense of what today we would call the hedonic tone of that stimulus. What the Buddha, the translation is, it's misleading sometimes, it's called the feeling tone in Pali, the Vedna, but it's really what's called today the hedonic tone. Is it pleasant or unpleasant? All right. So we have stimulus, contact, then you have the feeling tone, hedonic tone, then, then, craving arises. So, uh, based on preceding conditions, there's the stimulus, there's contact, there's the most elemental experience. Based on that elemental experience, there is a hedonic tone or a feeling tone. And then based on that hedonic tone, there is some form of craving. Aversion to the unpleasant, uh, grasping for the pleasant, dismissal or delusion related to the neutral. That's basic Buddhist psychology right there. And then on the heels of craving comes clinging, which is a more developed and instantiated form of craving. It's kind of, we're in it. And then suffering. Okay, that right there. So, if we can break the sequence, break the chain, install a shock absorber between the hedonic tone and the craving that follows, then we can have more equanimity and less suffering and more happiness, love, wisdom, and joy. Right there. Now, uh, for the sake of this model, you can, and also in reality, you can see how the, the safety system is activated by what's unpleasant, a threat, or pain or the threat of pain. The satisfaction system, which meets our needs uh, through approaching rewards, I'll get to that in a moment, is activated by the pleasant feeling tone or hedonic tone. What activates the connection system? I personally think, as many others do, that our needs for connection in all their complexity as the most social species on the planet cannot be just deconstructed into or summarized as some arithmetic 
of pleasure and pain, safety and satisfaction. I think we're profoundly social. I also think that what that's clear to me. I think it's also emerging a fourth Vedna, a fourth category of hedonic tone, a sense of things being related. related. And you can watch this in your own experience. There's a sense of things as pleasant, there's a sense of things as painful, unpleasant, uncomfortable, and then there's a sense of them just being utterly neutral. But there's also this sense of being related or heartfelt or in a field of relationship on the heels of which a kind of motivational system is activated. Um, I'd offer that for two reasons um, as a hypothesis to take a look at. Uh, One is that I think it sharpens our mindfulness to be looking out for that sense of connectedness or relatedness as a quality of experience. And also, frankly, I think it's a corrective to the primarily male-dominated patriarchal history and lineage in Buddhism and psychology uh, and philosophy as well about our human nature. I think our human nature is much more social than those men uh, have taught. So, see for yourself. These needs, I think, are met by three systems. We achieve safety by avoiding, generally. Again, classic psychology here, nothing very exotic. We meet needs for um, satisfaction, reward, by approaching rewards. So we have avoid approach, classic distinction. And in my view, again, there's a third major need, a third major motivational and regulatory system that has to do with attaching, attaching to others. And just so you know, my own roots intellectually, I guess, are in developmental psychology, including attachment theory. And my dissertation was on 15-month-olds. So I have a real interest in in this territory and a decent knowledge of what the scholarship is. Okay, so far? This is a framework. Frameworks are not right or wrong. They're useful or not useful. So I'm just offering this as, I think, a useful map for looking at the needs that generate craving uh, and um, see for yourself. Okay? So we have three needs loosely associated with the three levels of evolution of the brain. Yeah. The icons, are they yours? They are the... In we, I have no idea. My person who does this stuff for me found them and put them there. I guarantee you that they're either free or we paid for them. So <laughs> that's the second precept. Do not take what is not freely offered. Uh, but you're welcome to take them yourself. All right. I want to keep rolling, but yep. I have one question. The page before under satisfaction, you know, lost. Oh, yeah, right here? Yeah. Uh, what to, to? Okay, I want to. Yeah, I think. Thank you for saying that. I think of this as uh, just for the purposes of a, making a model and having a um, conceptually di- keeping my distinctions clear. I think of this as loss of property. So you lose your car, or you lose your job. Or you have a loss of an income. Uh, someone steals something from you. That's going to engage your need for broadly satisfaction. Other many issues cross borders, and as we'll see, especially relationship issues cross these borders. Again, one reason why I, why I call them out in their own unique category because I think they're so profound. Because if you think about it, if you lose a relationship, 
particularly someone that you're very involved with, it hits you in all three needs. You've lost there, there's something that's not happening uh, in your relationship needs, but also there's a loss of reward, often financial issues as well. And then it's, it's a challenge to safety. Okay? So for sure. Now, um, to keep going, so what I'm also trying to get at is how do we engage life, including challenges to these needs, without tipping into what the Buddha called the poisons of hatred, greed, and delusion. And I would add maybe heartache or interpersonal conflict, war. How do we do that? So there are challenges. It's easy to feel like your needs are met when you're, you're getting a mani-pedi and ivy chocolate and they're playing Anya or whoever in your soundtrack. Metallica, maybe, I don't know. But anyway, uh, and um, so, but how do we feel like our needs are being met in real time and not fall into craving while dealing in real, with real life? Traffic, Fox News, teenagers, the, the major challenges. Okay. <laughs> So, needs are met by systems. What happens when people feel like their needs are met? Also, uh, our animal cousins, non-human animals, zebras. Uh, why don't zebras get ulcers? The title of Robert Sapolsky's great book on stress. Uh, or lizards. What happens when a lizard feels like its need, his needs are being met, especially for safety? Well, when we feel basically safe... The avoiding system, this is my framework, it's a kind of an organizing framework, see for yourself, goes into what I call the responsive mode and in which the body repairs and refuels itself, recovers from stress, conserves resources, and in which the mind is colored with some sense of peace. That's an umbrella term, peace. So we have uh, yeah, calm, calm strength, feeling protected, feeling all right, feeling relieved, peace. Similarly, when we feel like our needs are met for satisfaction, and the key is, do we feel like our needs are met? So circumstances matter, but the crux is the experience. There are a lot of people living in difficult conditions who in their core are at peace and happy and loving. There are also a lot of other people in affluent corners of the world or who are affluent themselves in those countries who have, who have the object of conditions of a sufficiency of safety and satisfaction and connection, but in their mind, they're living in hell. They're neurotic, they're unhappy. Um, I grew up in Southern California. Beverly Hills was nearby. A lot of, a lot of trouble there. Okay, so both are important. It's not either or. External conditions are really important, but at the end of the day, what's our experience of those external conditions? And the same thing with connection. Okay? So far? That's our resting state. That's our home base. This is in some ways a way to operationalize a mind in which there's, there's little or no underlying true basis for craving. There may be some habitual craving, some auto-craving, but in the moment at least, when there's an experience of fullness and balance and enoughness already of safety, of satisfaction and connection, in that moment, there isn't a basis for craving because craving's based on deficit and disturbance. This is actually really profound. 
to reflect on the implications, including the point that it's possible to have many moments in a day in which there is very little basis for craving and very little sense of it. In that moment, the mind is free and at ease. And it also helps us recognize that our animal cousins uh, can, in the moment they feel fed, I've seen lizards just kind of hanging out in the sun, doing lizard push-ups, where you start stroking their little bellies. You know, I grew up around the hills of Southern California. They're like, ah. You know, this is our biological endowment. It's not yet awakening, but it's a good basis for it. On the other hand, what happens when we feel our needs are not met? When we, in our core, (coughs) experience... um, pain or the threat of it, that's invasive. And here there's a phrase that's come down to us from the Buddhist description of his own run-up to awakening that I find really useful and I reflect upon it often. He said, uh, as he approached his awakening, painful, racking feelings arose in my mind, arose, but they did not invade my mind and remain. That's the distinction. We can have physical pain. There are so many examples around us. We know them. Probably you know people like this in your life. We have uh, examples like this alive in the world today and certainly throughout history who are dealing with great difficulty. They're in physical pain. Uh, They uh, are grappling with um, disappointment, understandably, frustration. They're, uh, you know, they've been terribly mistreated, um, certainly anger, well-deserved righteous anger or uh, sense of injustice as arises in the mind. It's, it's perfectly okay. It's just one more content of consciousness. But in their core, there's an evenness. There's an even keeledness. They've retained a fundamental freedom in their core, in their relationship to what's passing through awareness. It does not invade and remain. That's so hopeful, isn't it? It means that, okay, yeah, I, my mind's like Woody Allen's sometimes. I, it's not like Woody Allen's in many ways. But anyway, stuff flows through it. All right, you know, this side of complete awakening, stuff's going to arise. But what's the relationship to it? Does it land and stick and sink roots? And then do we fertilize it? and harvested for the rest of our life. That's the key distinction. Okay. So in the reactive mode, I call it, so we have this two sort of loosely defined um, ways of being. Responsive mode, green zone, we feel like there's a fullness, an enoughness, uh, the mind is colored with peace and contentment and love. Then we have uh, the reactive mode, the red zone, Burst of fight, flight, freeze. Necessary perhaps sometimes, but we don't want to let it invade the mind and remain. And in the reactive mode, we tend to burn resources in the body. We tend to disturb it. Uh, We create what's called allostatic load, gradual accumulation of wear and tear on body and mind. And in the mind, we're, we're colored with three words, with a sense of fear in terms of safety, frustration in terms of satisfaction, and I'll call it hurt or heartache in terms of connection. The Buddhist traditional words for the first two of these were hatred and um, greed. But I think a more general updated term might be fear and frustration. 
But these are umbrella terms. Okay, so far? So now, what do we do? Right? So, reactive mode, we leave home. I think a lot of people get stuck in the reactive mode. It's a kind of inner homelessness that becomes chronic. I think about this really deep, deep saying, the root of all sickness is homesickness. There's a lot in that. Different ways of defining home and sickness, but the root of all sickness is homesickness. This is, in one slide, a kind of neuropsychological operationalization of the second noble truth. Like those ads about drugs, this is your brain on drugs, you know, the egg frying in the pan. (laughs) This is your brain on craving. On the other hand, if we repeatedly come home and we help ourselves experience an enoughness of needs met, safe enough, satisfied enough, loved and loving enough, connected enough, in the moment. And then we internalize that green zone experience, responsive mode experience, again and again. The Buddha says, the mind takes its shape from what it repeatedly rests upon. As we repeatedly rest our mind upon moments, minutes, sometimes hours or days, in which we're uh, in our core, no matter what's swirling around the edges, in our core, we're at ease and we're rested in peace and contentment and love. As we do that repeatedly, that becomes increasingly the habit of our heart. We rest there. And through those experiences, we grow psychological resources of various kinds. Calm, mindfulness, concentration, compassion, insight, grit, courage. We grow resources of various kinds so that the next time a challenge comes, we can meet it while staying essentially responsive or green in our core. This also would be an operationalization of the traditional uh, notion of equanimity, of being able to walk evenly over uneven ground. All right? So far? Okay. What, in terms of repeated experiences of the green zone, the responsive mode of safety, satisfaction, and connection, in a very goofy but memorable metaphor that relates meeting our needs to the evolution of the brain in its three stages, it is so useful to repeatedly pet the lizard. Help yourself feel safe. All right right now. Protected. Releasing primal uneasiness. Being vigilant for real threats. Dealing with real threats. I think about many times rock climbing. I was in a very dangerous setting, standing on edges about the width of a pencil or smaller, uh, my heart was pounding. There was anxiety around the edges. Perfectly fine. And I was having the time of my life. In my core, I was not invaded by the threat. So we can deal with challenges to safety without dripping into uh, being consumed by fear or anger or hatred. Similarly, it's helpful again and again. Feed your mouse. Gratitude, wholesome pleasure, sensual pleasure, accomplishment of goals... Uh, gladness, thinking of things that make you feel happy, not to deny the pain or deny the problem, but if anything, to grow resources inside 
to deal with pain and problems. Feed the mouse. So that more and more you come into the next moment feeling already full. So, you know, if you don't get that thing or um, you, you, you get the next Land's End Christmas catalog and it's nice, it's interesting. It's, it'd be nice to have another sweater. But there's no sense of craving for it or drivenness toward that goal. Okay? And then last, very important, hug the monkey. Again and again and again. Connection, connection, connection. Uh, love is the multivitamin. It's the universal medicine. It's matched to all of our needs because it takes care of our connection needs and uh, love in all its forms is rewarding and love in all its forms is a primal signal of safety. Okay? The point of all this is certainly to enjoy, as the Buddha called it, that happiness which is visible in this present life it's perfectly appropriate to do that, to develop a greater sense of, of well-being. And the, a major aspect of that well-being is that it's resilient. It can be challenged, and yet in the core, there is a stability of peace, contentment, and love, and insight and freedom in our relationship to conditions, including our own experiences. Really great summary, isn't it, of so much practice, not just in Buddhism. We, we work to expand the range of experiences in which we are free. Not just conditions, environments, circumstances, but experiences passing through the mind in which we are free in our relationship to them. It's easy, as Upandita is speaking to, to uh, just be fine when everything's going great, right? But what about if it's unpleasant? Do we have to tip into aversion and hatred just because something's unpleasant? What about pleasant? Can we enjoy it without getting attached to it? Can we aspire without attachment and drivenness? I grapple with that a lot uh, in worldly ways. Can you be ambitious without while being simultaneously utterly at peace with the outcome? Can you go for it with passion and a whole heart while being at peace with whatever happens? Huh. How about relationships? Can we um, hold people in our hearts even as we need perhaps to push them out of our company, our bed, or our halls of power? Uh, can we do that? You know, can we expand a range in which we are still free? There's this notion that somehow we should push away pleasure. And the Buddha's own journey was to realize the shortfalls of the ascetic path and to appreciate that there's a middle way in which there's an internalization of wholesome beneficial experiences and a cultivation of compassion and love and joy uh, and wisdom in the process of which there's less and less basis for craving. Cultivation undoes the basis for craving. Over time, our deliberate practices of cultivation fall away. You see more and more that people who are very far along in practice are already full, already at ease, their hearts already rested in love. They've, they've done that work. Uh, and they've also released repeatedly 
um, the afflictions of various kinds, the hindrances, the taints, the poisons, sometimes called, of resentment or old feelings of inadequacy in more psychological terms or addictive tendencies. Those have been released. And they're more and more rested in what the Buddha called that, that uh, highest happiness, which is peace. So cultivation practices fall away, like in the traditional metaphor, the raft that we construct to get us across the river of suffering, but when we're on the other side, we don't keep carrying it around. Okay. That's a fundamental framework. A lot of material there. For me, what's really great about this material is that it rings true to me, it makes sense neuropsychologically, it makes sense in terms of evolution. Embedded in it is is our kinship with our non-animal cousins, you know, And another thing is that it suggests that a path with heart, a great path, is a green zone path in which we help ourselves feel that our needs are met. We've got to take in that experience. And then as we do that, we grow resources in a positive cycle that help us stay in the responsive mode even as we grapple with larger and larger challenges. Okay? So... Any question? Good. And then we'll do a practice. Peace, contentment, and love. On demand. Yeah. Does it have to be um, yourself, making yourself feel safe and that your needs are met? Like what happens if it's somebody else helping you to feel that way? Okay. So can you, what if it's your, does it have to be yourself that's helping you experience that a need is being met? Or can you do it for yourself? Or can someone else help you experience the needs map. This is a deep question, a lot of material about it. I'm going to hit some high points kind of quickly. And then, by the way, my plan is to slide into a meditation and finish by 12.30 and go into lunch. Okay, so, and a break and so forth. So, first point is that when we're already having a beneficial experience for whatever source, you're already feeling relaxed, protected, all right, or strong, able to deal with challenges or something else that supports the sense of safety. Or maybe you're already having an experience of satisfaction or of connection. You're already having an experience. Then the question becomes, do we internalize that experience? Do we take in the good, as I put it, and really stay with the experience, opening to it in our body for a breath or so or longer to really help it land. So that's so my first point is to distinguish between experiences we're already having and are simply noticing and harvesting, distinct from deliberately creating experiences. Okay? In the second case, it's, I think, perfectly fine to self-generate beneficial experiences. The Buddha teaches it all the time. Self-generate mindfulness. Self-generate compassion. Self-generate uh, a reflection on one thing or another. Uh, so it, it's really okay. People say, oh, that's manipulating the mind. I say, so what? Your mind's being manipulated all day long by external forces and your own history. Why not manipulate it well? So, okay, so you see those distinctions? So we have a distinction first between noticing what's there or creating it. Next distinction is what's the basis of the experience, especially when we're creating. Is it um, dependent upon an external condition or is it dependent upon something that we do just strictly inside ourselves? 
I think both are fine. One thing is perfectly fine if you want to help yourself marinate in beauty to put a flower on your desk. If you want to help yourself marinate in love and connection, put pictures of your kids or grandkids on your refrigerator. Why not? Um, do sensible things uh, uh, to help yourself have a reasonably good life. And out of benevolence and enlightened self-interest, help others to have the same. I mean, there's, there's a place for that. Right? Uh, if your back is vulnerable, as mine is, get a little support for it if you have your chair at home. I don't, I don't need a support here. I'm, I'm okay. So my point is, yeah, intervene in our circumstances, including in other people. Seek people who help you feel like a bigger person than, rather than a smaller person. Help find people who build you up rather than tear you down. Also find people who help you see your BS and you know, can implement some correction about it too. You know. So that's appropriate as well. That said, my view is that, um, the, and again, the Buddha too, he was real clear about, yeah, intelligently and wisely seek external conditions, like places of seclusion or good company. He really emphasized the benefit of good company for personal practice in, a, in, in addition to the moral aspects of that. Um, okay, great. On the other hand, uh, external conditions, they're hard to create sometimes. They change People do what they do. Uh, you know, on the other hand, what you carry with you, you take with you wherever you go. And uh, being skillful and able inside one's own mind to, as appropriate, create beneficial experiences resolutely on your own, that to me is a really useful capability. So I don't see it as either or. And then it goes down to the... To, to what's in, what works for a particular person. I do think that there are certain needs and issues, especially in people's history, that relate to the um, connection system that are particularly healed in relationship. And um, the question then becomes, what happens if you don't have access to a, to a literal person or relationship or what happens if you will never have had wholly nurturing parenting you know maybe there was a loss or something else that happened what do you do then and in my view we're not dead in the water because one way or another through our circumstances around us and also what we do in our own minds we can generate at least some large fraction of those critically important experiences including those aspects which are developmentally very young and then once that song is playing in the inner iPod, it doesn't matter what the source is, pragmatically, from the standpoint of changing neurostructure and function. Right. So, yeah. And, um, okay. That's that a lot. Is that okay? That, that spoke to you. That was a great question. So how about let's do a practice. Ready? And... This is a practice that I do routinely. You can take more time with it. You can just do it for a minute or so. You know, pet the lizard, hug the monkey. Pardon me. Pet the lizard, feed the mouse, hug the monkey. Uh, resting in three umbrella terms, peace, contentment, and love. As with any practice in which we're deliberately making little efforts in our mind, uh, you always want to find what's authentic for you. And it's never about falsifying your experience or faking anything. 
it's more a matter of invoking or opening to, inviting, encouraging. It's okay to deliberately think about things that call up certain experiences. Obviously, we don't want to get too manipulative of the mind, but a little bit of skill there is really quite helpful. Uh, For example, if at times I've had to assert myself uh, with people, sometimes I'll call up the feeling in my body from doing physical things, like pulling over an overhang in my rock climbing history to pull up the body memory to deal with the situation. So it's, it's okay to pull up, to do little prompts inside your mind. But, you know, a little of that goes a long way. Okay, so I'm going to offer some prompts. The least important thing here are the prompts that can support the generation, if you will, of the song inside your mind. The most important, the, the, the second most important, the least important thing are my prompts. Second most important is to get the experience going. Most important is internalization. As you have beneficial experiences of craving falling away and a growing resting and well-being already, broadly defined as peace, contentment, and love, as that happens, take it in. Open, open to it. Marinate in it. Rest in it. Cultivate that quality in yourself. So there's a stability of peace, contentment, and love increasingly as you move through life. Okay? So let's begin. And I, I tend to do it from the bottom up based on the history of the brain. Safety is such a fundamental need. In your own practice, you might find it helps to do this in a different sequence. Here we go. So, being here in your own seat or place... And establishing the intention to help yourself feel as safe as you reasonably can. We touched on this practice in the morning meditation. Helping the body relax. Noticing you're all right. Letting go of unnecessary anxiety or guarding or bracing. Letting go of resisting aversion. Letting go of any kind of war with anything anywhere in your mind. Opening like a flower into a growing tranquility and peace.
different different words, prompts help different people. For example, what's it feel like to be at peace? What's it feel like to be peaceful? to what's unpleasant, falling away of any aversion to what's uncomfortable or painful or unpleasant. Unpleasant may pass through the mind, but there can be a falling away of any resisting of it or aversion to it, any kind of craving related to it. basis for that kind of craving as you abide at peace. here, although you're welcome to go at your own pace, allowing the sense of peace to move to the back of awareness, and focusing more on a sense of contentment. It can help to bring to mind things you're grateful for, gifts you've already been given, blessings you've already received. of so many little goals or milestones accomplished, so many little successes already. So many pleasures already experienced. Nice to have more, sure. And you can feel already full. 
overflowing enoughness already. So there can be a falling away of disappointment, a falling away of frustration, falling away of drivenness. Replaced by a sense of contentment, being contented instead of discontented. It's okay to think of things that make you happy, beautiful places you've been, good times with others. Resting in contentment. be a simple, sweet happiness. Not chasing it, more opening out into. And you can be aware of any kind of greed falling away kind of grasping for pleasure falling away, any internal sense of drivenness falling away, replaced by ease and contentment.
then allowing contentment or anything related to it to move to the back of awareness. And focusing now on coming to rest in love. It can help to bring to mind beings you care about, beings who've cared about you. It's natural if your mind gets distracted and goes out to not feeling so cared about or issues with other people. Simply be mindful of that and come back to what you're helping yourself do here, which is to come home and to rest in a base of love. Love flowing into you, a sense of friendliness and appreciation and caring coming to you, and love flowing out of you, your compassion, your caring, your kindness flowing out. bring to mind beings that you have a special feeling for, perhaps pets, special friends. People who make you laugh. You can be aware, if you like, of your own lovingness, your own commitment to helping others. Your own supportiveness, decency. And in all this, let there be a falling away of resentment, grievance, Let there be a falling away of old feelings of inadequacy. Let there be a falling away of clinging. A falling away of quarreling. Replaced resting in love.
you can be aware of a falling away of any kind of clinging in the mind to interpersonal experiences, any kind of problematic desire to get things from other people or to have them see you a particular way, of falling away of that, knowing you can still assert yourself, you can still reach out to people to seek what you want. You can still do that without any sense of disturbance or deficit about it. It's a little bit like love, like a rising fountain. Just naturally pushes to the side old conflicts, old feelings of worthlessness, old struggles. Abiding in love. Then in the last few minutes here, finding a more general sense of peace, contentment, and love, a more general sense of a mind at ease, already full, what it's like to have little or no craving coloring the mind. sense of this is your true home. Simply being without any sense of anything missing or anything disturbed or wrong.
in a moment we'll take our lunch break. <clears throat> Beware of craving food. Um, they're having a silent uh, program upstairs. So if you do go upstairs, maybe to use the bathroom or to use some of the breakout rooms, just try to keep it quiet up there if you could. Uh, you probably know there's a deli across the road out there, Sir Francis Drake. If you do go in, you have to go into Woodacres. The trick is to go to the road, be sure to turn right, and then at your next opportunity to turn left, go down into uh, Woodacre on Railroad. And there's a nice deli there with a lot of stuff. You're welcome to bring food back. How about we resume at, uh, in an hour at 1.30? Okay. And uh, I'll start on time. Happy to hang out here if people have questions. When you come back, we'll talk more about it. And you might want to watch your own mind. As things are unpleasant or pleasant or neutral or relational, as they are, what happens next? And can you relate to the sense of things, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and let's say relational, can you relate to it without sliding into any sense of a problem or wrong about it or not enoughness or any sense of tension or pressure? Pressure is a major giveaway. Uh, Contraction, pressure, drivenness. Uh, I asked a teacher of mine, Gil Fronstel, once, so Gil, in your practice, what do you do? That's a useful question, right? Um, He paused, he reflected, and he said, I stop for suffering. (laughs) His own and others, stop for suffering. So when you notice subtleties of contraction and suffering, stop for them and observe that and see if you can still pursue your goals and deal with the challenges, but without being contracted about it, without being in the red zone about it. And it can help to reaccess that resourced sense of peace, contentment, and love, your own core of resilient well-being, on the basis of which you can meet challenges in life. Okay, see you at one thirty. Come on back. Cool stuff this afternoon. That's a promise. All right, see you then. <laughs>